0: Welcome to Ag Credit Set It. In each episode, our hosts sit down with experts from all parts of the agriculture industry to bring you insights and must have information on all things from farming to finances and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of Ag Credit Set It. I'm Brenna Finnegan. I'm here in the Paulding office with Matt Adams. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Brenna. Uh, glad to be back with you uh, for another exciting episode of Ag Credit Set It. Today we are going to talk with Kirk Reckerman. Uh, he is the grain division manager for Mercer Landmark, and we're going to touch on a lot of different topics today. Um, From, you know, some of the basics of grain marketing to some of the driving factors that we're seeing in the uh, industry today um, from local to across the country to even some of the world markets. Welcome, Kirk. Thank you, Matt. So, Kirk, kind of go off. uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Mercer Landmark. Sure. Uh, So, my name is Kirk Reckerman.
2: Working for Mercer Landmark. I started the business uh, with Mercer back in 2017. Um, before that, though, I started working with uh, ADM Countrymark back in 1996. Graduated from Ohio State with a degree in um, agricultural uh, communications and um, business economics and got into the grain business there, starting with ADM Countrymark um, over in Indianapolis, was in Toledo. Eventually took a job position for a Fayette County co-op in Connorsville, Indiana, and I got into the origination side. Really loved the origination uh, from the grain side. The markets were changing every single day. And that's what always excited me there. Through my progression of my career, you know, I grew up in uh, Minster, Ohio. There, and um, wanted the opportunity to come back into that area. You know, I love the Auglaize, uh, Shelby County, Mercer County, Dark County, you know, the northwest quadrant of Ohio. And had the opportunity to uh, start with a Minster Farmers Cooperative in 2001. Uh, through a series of transitions, uh, we became a you know Advanced Egg, then became True Point. So in 2014, after 13 years uh, with Legacy Cooperatives. I took the opportunity to, uh, to come up here to Defiance to manage the Consolidate Grain and Barge uh, new track loop facility that came into possession. So was able to do that for three years, but traveling an hour and a half from New Bremen, it kind of got a little uh, long and old, plus my children at that time were in the sports, et cetera. So Mercer Landmark had an opportunity to become the uh, grain division manager at that time uh, back in 2017. So it was a great opportunity for myself to be closer to home and work you know, for Mercer Landmark. In the last five years though, I mean, we've seen a big transition uh, from the grain side. Uh, we built a brand new feed mill uh, in MPS uh, down in St. Henry. And then we also had the, recently here in the last two years, we had the transition of the Ladia Agricultural Campus there um, that we got from the Church of Latter-day Saints. And so great opportunity uh, from my side there. I What I do for Mercer though, what I get paid to do, as I like to say, is I get the opportunity to manage um, you know, roughly about 35 individuals and uh, manage also oversee the facilities all the way from uh, Sherwood down to uh, New Western Ohio, which is in northern Dark County. Okay. So, got approximately 18 facilities, and then I also work with all the consumers uh, from the
1: feed division. Gotcha. And I know just looking on the Mercer Landmark site, just here locally where I uh, farm in Paulding County, uh, the Laddie Terminal has been, you know, a, a huge asset to us local producers, and that's really... You guys have really turned that into almost a one-stop shop for agronomy, from grain to uh, fertilizer, seed, um, propane, gas. I mean, it's uh, becoming – you can get everything there in one place.
2: Absolutely, and that was the concept, you know, when we looked at Laddie there. We originally looked at for the grain side, but we saw how many acres, etc., that was available. And we're like, you know, we could really turn this into a nice agricultural campus, you know, for the whole entire, you know – Paulding, Defiance, Fayette County, Williams, you know Putnam, Van Wert, you know really for this Northwest Ohio, give us some opportunities. Um, our little slogan is that we like to feed the world, and I think with getting on the uh, Mainline Norfolk Southern Rail, that gives that opportunity. Uh, we've already seen that from the grain side, you know we have soybeans um, from this area that have gone all the way down to uh, Mobile, Alabama, uh, this past fall. You know we've had uh, three hundred car unit trains that we have shipped down there, so about a million plus bushels of beans from this area. Actually went down to the Gulf of Mexico and um, went on a boat that decided to go across seas. All
1: starting it's, off the rail.
0: It's kind of funny to hear all this from the western side of the state because I'm from, I would say, north central portion of the state. And I think of santara and Sunrise and, you know, those types of places. And they're very similar that they've gotten to the point where they've got these like almost like a campus of some sort mm-hmm. for all of this these activities within the ag industry,
2: so. Correct. I mean, I think that's the, the vision, the direction, you know, that we're seeing a lot of agricultural go towards is, is that one-stop shop. Mm-hmm. As you said there, Matt, you know, the idea is, you know, bring your grain in, dump it, then you can backload, you know, backhaul some fertilizer back to your, you know, farm. And with the fuel prices that we're seeing today, anything can help us to
1: earn that extra oh, yeah. dollar or two per the acre.
0: backhaul pays for that.
1: <laughs> and I, I, you look at, as a producer, if we can, can – I want to say almost control a price per acre on everything, or we know going into it exactly all of our inputs and our end product, we have a pretty good idea on what profit we're going to see at the end. It just helps the growth of that operation and just eliminates a lot of guesswork in it.
0: Well, it's nice to know you have a place to go. Exactly. Um, and having that opportunity and having different locations all over the place. So, I mean, it was like that, well... When I did popcorn, we only had one place to take it. So they all had to truck it right to us. And that, I mean, sometimes it could be a little bit inconvenient that way because it's so specialized. Mm -hmm. But to get into the broad spectrum and have options, it's great. So, but you all, uh, you mentioned in your intro of yourself that uh, a lot of grain marketing type work, obviously. Going to the basics of grain marketing... Kind of cover contracts. What are they? You know the different types, all that sort of
2: stuff. Yes, yeah, so when it comes to grain marketing, that's probably the how do I want to say this here? It's the producers. It's not their first love. Okay, no. <laughs> the producer prefers to grow the crop there, and it comes to marketing, as you mentioned earlier, Matt. That. You know, if we could just get that fixed price there, know what it is, and make sure we could sell at that profitable level, because that's what we want to do. We want the producer to be profitable. So there is an array of uh, different types of grain contracts that are out there. Now, it's not like a one-shop, you know, all for everyone. You have to look at the different uh, ways of using it, the portfolios of them, and to kind of mix them all together. Uh, it also depends on what your risk structure is, what you're willing to do. But, you know, the biggest concept, you know, when it comes to grain contracts, it's about the cash price. In order to get that cash price, you need the uh, Chicago Board of Trade Futures, plus or minus this local basis, and that gives you the cash price. So when we look at our, our, what I call more simplistic type contracts, you have your fixed price or a cash spot, which is exactly what it does. You lock in your futures, you lock in your local basis, that gives you the cash price. And then we go to what's considered being a basis contract. So you think about the same formula, well, you're just not locking in the futures now. You're leaving the futures open because you think the market could go higher, but you're feeling the basis levels, the local basis may go lower. So you want to lock in that contract. And that gives you the opportunity to lock in the futures later on at a later time. On a uh, futures-only contract, the other way, we're going to lock in the futures, but we're going to leave that basis open. And a lot of times we like to do that in that Jan, Feb, March window for the following year because we think basis is maybe too low at that point, and it'll get a little stronger or better at a later time. So we'd like the futures price. We want to get that opportunity to lock that in. And then the last contract is delayed price. And that's basically is a contract where you don't lock in any of your futures or basis. You're leaving that open you're paying the elevator a right to give you you basically for that right to price at a later date. So those are your four basic, you know, contracts that we have. And then we go into more of these I call them solution based contracts. Um, We offer a, a CHS suite of, um, they're called price builders, daily price plus cash plus. And this is really using more of the options that are in the marketplace. Uh, What I mean by the options, you have calls and puts. And a lot of times, as producers, we don't really want to go onto the Chicago Board of Trades and lock in those calls and puts because one is they tend to be very expensive. Two is you have to do in five thousand bushel increments. So companies have come up with these different type of uh, solution based contracts so it can fit anyone. Uh, the ones that we offer uh, through CHS allows the opportunity for the producer to you know lock up any incremental amount that they want to. If they want to do something for three hundred bushels or for thirty thousand bushels, it gives them that opportunity. And those uh, basically are utilizing puts and calls and, you know, trying to give the producer a much better value than where the current marketplace is. With that, you basically have a potential of a second accumulation level or second commitment because you can't quite get a better value for free. So there's a little bit of a cost there. We do charge two cents for those uh, contracts there, but they're a really good uh, contract to put in your whole portfolio. We usually don't like to uh, produce do any more between 10 to 20% because of that second commitment that could turn to 20 or 40% of your production. I started running these way back in 2011, 2012, and if we remember what happened back in those years, uh, we had a very poor, poor crop. I had some producers that were locking in 450 corn, which they thought was a tremendous level based off the 2009, 2010 years, and before we know it, crop was only maybe half of what we had, and then the market went all the way up to 7 to eight dollars so oh, yeah, I remember all that. next thing I know, we had guys that were almost overcommitted, you know, by over hundred percent and had to work with them there. So right. we've learned really quick, you know, they may sound really good and they're great for their time, but every once in a while the market tends to uh, kick us yep. where we don't like it to be.
0: Now you mentioned basis, obviously going back to the basics again, the basis is what, and it can be positive. It can be negative.
2: Correct. So the basis levels, um, that's where we look more at being more for the local market. Uh, when I look at the futures, that's more macros. That's what's happening in the world, what's happening in the whole U.S., what's happening out in Iowa, Illinois, you know, the I-States, whereas the basis is more about what's happening in northwest Ohio, what's happening maybe in northeast Indiana you know, in the feed markets, the rail markets. So, yes, you can have positive and negative basis levels depending on how the crop size is in that area there, how the crop quality is in that area. And, you know, maybe what's also factoring, you know, at maybe some of the local processors, particularly on the soybean side, you know, with the bungees, the cargills, and the you know, ADMs over at and, you know, Claypool with Louis-Dreyfus.
1: Looking at a lot of the different factors that drive our grain markets, you know, whether it be local or even worldwide, do you feel we're kind of in a bit of an unprecedented time right now with so many different driving factors from, you know, here, currently going on which this episode won't actually drop here until December you know we look at the the crisis in Ukraine and how that's affecting stuff the impeding railroad strike that uh, we keep hearing about uh, the rivers drying up and barge traffic shutting down uh, where do you see the factor these driving factors pushing pushing our markets and do you guys have kind of some ideas in place on how to counteract that a little bit
2: well I'll try to be Nostradamus here with the uh, basis <laughs> levels etc <cetera>, but <laughs> um, but they're all different factors here I look at the Ukraine Russia situation that we've heard about you know last February I would say probably 90% of us didn't have a clue what Ukraine meant to the world when it comes to grain oh right particularly oh, correct, on the export yeah. side I had no idea how big of a you know individual you know the country was to the world uh, you know, we look at the wheat side on there you know Ukraine basically Produces roughly about four and a half to five percent of the total wheat production, but yet when it comes to exports, they're right around eighteen percent of the exports of the whole world.
1: That's crazy. It's a Whereas, big difference.
2: You know, the U.S. I mean, you know, we're rated right around uh, about six percent of the total production, and we're rated right around about fourteen percent of the exports. So Ukraine does export more wheat than what we do there. You know, then we look at the corn side, and Ukraine is one of the top four when it comes to corn. When it comes to sunflower seeds, which a lot of us don't understand that. But, you know, with sunflower oil and everything there, I mean, they're the number one exporter in the world when it comes to sunflowers. So when this invasion happened there, I mean, it really spooked the market. And we saw Mm -hmm. us go into a whole different level that we had no idea what to expect. But, you know, it's just continuing to lay on us here. And I'm not too sure when this world war is going to end or what's going to happen from there. But it's something that the markets constantly are looking at. For a quick example here, back in you know right before Thanksgiving, uh, the corn market you know we saw was trading. The bean markets were all trading about four or five cents lower. Well, then we had the Russia you know launch some missiles over Kyiv, mm-hmm. and one of them got mishit and hit in Poland. Well, before we know there's a possible international crisis, we saw the corn market go from four or five cents lower to up ten cents. We saw the beans being down about six, seven cents lower, and they're up close to twenty cents. And then the very next day, after we realized that Poland wasn't a saying that it was okay, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal, but you know, it's okay, it's not a big international crisis. The market comes completely off where you drop you know, 16, 17 cents on beans and rate right around about 8 cents on corn. So, so there's I mean, a
0: one-day opportunity to capture something oh, definitely is. that you just didn't know.
2: Right. I mean, and you have those black swan events in this grain market, so how do you protect yourself against that? And that's what we're here to try to look at, you know, to do there.
0: That's where we all wish we had that... Uh, the magical ball that tells us everything that's going to happen in the <laughs> world. So that way we know what we're going to need to do.
2: So. And you mentioned before, you know, about basis wise, you know, so then all at once, you know, we look at the Mississippi river, you know, with the drought that was occurring all summer long and the Mississippi river really drying up here. And, you know, what's happened there was it just really affected the basis from the negative side. Um, they couldn't get the barges up and down. Barge freight got tremendously expensive at that time. So, you know, there's only so much space that these elevators have on the Mississippi, and a lot of grain flows there, I mean, during this uh, harvest window. So next thing you know, we saw basis levels go to like a dollar under the market down in Cincinnati. Well, next thing you know, that just slowly works its way up to the north. Mm-hmm. Cargill City didn't have to pay as much because all those beans started to flow from the south that typically go to Cincinnati up to Sydney. Well, then all the beans that typically went in our area that would go to Sydney decided let's go to Bungie because then they dropped their basis, and it just kind of just worked itself up there. And that's what those uh, you know plays in the market can do from a local basis side now as the river comes back online, I think basically we're going to get a little bit stronger here. Uh, we're already starting to see that now, okay um, you know from where we were at harvest window to where we're at you know today, and we've already jumped up roughly at the processors right around twenty five thirty cents and I think you're going to see that continue to go forward because we still have a lot of commitments to make on the export side, so we still got to get those beans down there from a corn perspective, we think about the railroad uh whether well, or not, you know, how long the strike lasts for or if it actually does take place, but it's that fear that's so we're laying there. And that's one of the things, uh, you know, the majority of our corn in this eastern Corn Belt area being northwest Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, goes down to the southeast markets in the Carolinas and Georgia to help feed the, the poultry and also, you know, the, the swine market.
1: Mostly all feed production to go all down. All feed
2: production, there. correct.
0: Okay. It's amazing how much just – transportation or movement of uh, the product is the driving force behind all of it. I mean, you think about Ukraine not being able to export things as much, obviously. I mean, things are pretty restricted there right now. So their exports are now declining, which obviously is driving ours up, I would assume, and then helping distribute the pricing or increase these prices.
2: That's the concept of the market, right? Right. We're trying to anticipate. That's why I keep trying to remind our producers, even our own, uh, you know, grain, you know, marketing associates that we have on our staff is that this is a futures market. You know, we're trying to project, predict what that future is. So what you're hearing today affecting the market and it finally does occur, well, it's already been in the marketplace. So that's usually when we kind of scratch our head and go, well, gosh darn, uh, you know, so-and-so came in here, bought quite a bit of uh, beans from the U.S. Well, we were anticipating that. it's already got built into the market and now we decided to drop that day. That's why a lot of times we'll say we're buying the rumor and we're going to sell the fact on
1: the board. And it, it's crazy because we even see it on our side, on the financial side, where it's almost like real-time information, even though it's sometimes rumor. our Even our rate environment will react quicker than what something actually has because we're anticipating that change in the – in Taking the, protection. Exactly. Yep. So one other thing we look at more locally here with uh, – you know, with Mercer's MPS feed mill and a lot of our corn here locally that gets used for uh, feed. We've had some vomitoxin issues this fall harvest, but we've come off some pretty good record yields in a lot of our areas. How does the vomitoxin really affect how we look at on the feed side? Because I know when it gets to a certain percentage, we can't use it for feed. So what how do we how do we work with that corn and what go where's that corn go if we can't use it for that feed production?
2: Yeah, vomitoxin this year has been a uh, something that we're hoping that was going to take place. We never do, and, and just for that reason, uh, you think about the corn that's in our area. I would say pr- roughly ninety five percent of our corn, if not one hundred percent of the corn that Mercer Landmark actually uses, goes into some type of feed product. Where it goes into our feed mills uh, through the Heartland Feed Services LLC that we have there, or through our MPS mill. If it goes on the rail cars, like off here up here at Latty, to go down into the southeast end user market.
1: To their mills down there. To their right. mills down
2: there. Or even um, if it goes to the corn into the ethanol, you know, they have a byproduct called you know dry distiller's grain. Yep. And um, you know, the vomitoxin there is even more of an impact because it's basically three times. So if you have a three part per million vomitoxin, you bring it to an ethanol, when it gets to the DDGs, it becomes nine parts per million. So when we look at this, you know, the nutritionists that we work with really are looking at that whole overall feed, you know, ingredient, or basically the whole feed sample to say, you know, what is that whole total part of vomitoxin? And the FDA has set some uh, guidelines on that one there. Um, Probably the easiest ones that we use, and we actually joked around about this this year, instead of buying, you know, vomitoxin test kits, we should just bought a bunch of uh, pot bellies and have them sniff the corn because (laughs) pigs won't eat it if it's less than basically two parts per million. They'll root around. And we're starting to hear about that at times, but the feed industry can put some uh, binders in there. You know, they may reduce the rations on uh, dry distillers and do a little bit more corn. But so one of the things that we do here, you know, we 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 decide to isolate as much as we could. Uh, we went testing protocols there. We realized on the uh, the layer and the broiler side, you know, they could go up to about ten parts per million. But we had to make sure that feed ration stays below five parts per million from the swine side at our of feed mill, which is a strictly a swine uh, facility. We was a pass or fail. We rejected anything above four parts per million and accepted anything that was less than four parts per million. And, uh, you know, at some of our cattle facilities, so we have two of them there that do the grain cattle. We did the same thing. We did a max of a 10 parts per million. So at our other facilities with the merch you know, we had some stuff that was as high as, you know, 40 parts per million, which is well, just unheard of there. So how do you work with that? Well, we're basically going to be taking that in there, and we're going to have to somehow blend it down okay. at some point. Now, it may take a year or so. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of these vomitoxin discount schedules you know, being extremely high because we do have this marketplace that's an inverted market where you're at a much higher price today than you are out ahead in September or even next you know, fall. And elevators are going to have to store onto this higher vomitoxin to eventually get it down in more manageable levels as it goes into the, uh, the feed markets.
0: So with vomitoxin being a big issue, we'll go ahead and take a quick break for the moment and then come on back and we'll get more details on that. As we near year end, we have the holidays on our mind, but don't forget, it's also a great time to reach out to your account officer to update your balance sheets and turn in your year-end financials.
1: Also, business for 2022 will close at noon on Friday at all of our branches on December 30th. Be sure to have any payments or questions taken care of by then. And have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from all of us at Ag Credit. And we're back with uh, with Kirk talking about all the intricacies of grain marketing and the driving factors of everything. So when we uh, left off, Kirk, we were talking about Vomitox and how Mercer has uh, different products and different plans in place to to work this corn through with blending. One thought I have as a producer. So if we have to sit on this corn longer, that it's not going to get through. So we have to blend it. So this corn is sitting longer. Does this affect the supply and demand overall for our corn, our corn uh, product to where the market's going to start seeing that because the corn is not readily available to use?
2: It's not necessarily going to affect the, uh, the supply and demand, but what is really going to be affected is volume toxin is about the local basis. You're going to start to see, and we are already starting to see there, you know, the ethanol facilities want a certain quality of corn, certain feed locations, you know, like our slina mill wants a certain quality of corn as well. Uh, the coopers, you know, but potting facility also wants a certain quality mm-hmm. of corn as well. So you're going to see those base levels begin to increase or get stronger in order to drive that certain quality of corn. And if the vomitoxin levels there, you know, as we mix them into the bins, et cetera, and I would say the majority of the producers don't really know what they actually have in their bins. You might have took samples. And this is one of the fallacies in my mind as we look at it is, you know, we have an individual producer brings in 60,000 pounds of corn, you know, maybe on two, you know, two wagons there or, Mm -hmm. or a truckload. You know, when you take a representative sample, and that's what we're trying to do at the, you know, at the probe station, you know, you're taking between, you know, four to five sticks of the probe there, and you're getting roughly about a two pounds sample of grain out of that 60,000 pounds. Well, then we cut that down through the dividers and things like that, and we grind up about 1,000 grams of that corn out of 60,000 pounds. And of that 1,000 grams, we're spooning out 20 grams to run a vomitoxin test kit. So, yes, can there be a variability in loads Absolutely, because you're taking 20 grams out of 60,000 pounds to say this is what your representative load is. So, yes, I mean, we do see some wide you know, gotcha. variabilities. And you think about it, you know, as you get in the fields, the way I like to do the analogy of the fields, you're going through across the fields, and, Matt, I'm sure when you're going across there, you get got some areas that might be doing 180 bushels, and you've got some areas that might be doing 260 bushels. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Vomitoxin is the same way in those fields. You might have some areas that's much higher, a lot of areas that are a lot lower, and we're trying to get it all you know, through. So... As that corn goes in the bin, and if we start pulling it out, we're not too sure exactly what to expect. We're going to see some high levels there. We're going to see some lower levels, and that's going to be a frustration part right now.
0: You're taking me back to some of my agronomy days. Now, looking at that and seeing that it's there, or knowing that it's there, when every time you take a load in and that small sample comes back and it's a higher level or whatnot, going back, like I said, going back to the agronomy side, how do you or what should people be looking at in the fields to help prevent some of this? I mean, what's causing it in the first place, and then what can they do to prevent it?
2: Well, Brenna, um, great question there, and I'm going to plead the fifth there because <laughs> I'm a grain guy, not an agronomy individual. Um, I would say talk to your, one of your agronomy advisors there. I know there's different products out there, but I think it's really about Mother Nature. I mean, we're, we're trying to find some correlations with the whole vomitoxin. I mean, I've heard all types of things, and I we can't really just – Pinpoint exactly See, I'm, where it is.
0: That's how what I'm going to look at because I like, I think of like what's what can we do to help prevent it from occurring? And I think genetically, corn has been bred for such stalk strength and things like that that now like I if you notice driving down the road, ears aren't dropping like they used right. to. Therefore, right. the the moisture sitting in that husk and forming that that fungus that's going to
2: contribute that's it. Correlation. I mean, the fields I had the ears standing up. I would expect that they had the most uh, yeah. potential vomitoxin there. But once again, I mean, the yields were tremendous. And that's what we look at there. We have to continue to feed the world, and we need that amount of supply you know, on the corn side to help with the markets, et cetera.
0: Now, knowing that vomitoxin was being tested for and guys wanting to prevent it from occurring, did you notice more or higher moistures coming in to help you know get it out of the field faster that would prevent it from occurring?
2: Not necessarily. I, I, th- I feel like the moisture, we had this conversation earlier um, this day, and we are talking about moistures, you know, you know, back in 2018. You know, we had a lot more higher moistures mm-hmm. in that 20 to 24% range. This year, it seemed like everything was more than that 22 to down to 16 And We had some, some other fields come down to 15%. Now, we had a really warm, uh, you know, summer, a lot more growing degrees. So, did that have something to affect to that or not? I don't know that for a fact, but the correlation
1: is there, in, in my opinion.
0: It makes sense. I mean, you think about hurry up and get it off so stuff doesn't grow on it, therefore.
1: Well, and then you also look on the producer side too with, uh, I call it kind of Indian summer we've had, you know, let that stuff stay in the field a little bit and do some Mother Nature drying so we're not uh, filling the propane tanks all the time, running the burners. So, so, you know, looking some more on that, uh, you know, the worldwide demand on corn. We touched on the Ukraine uh, situation you know, also some of the meetings that we've sat in, we talk about, you know, South America and how they continue to add acres every year and become a larger and larger player. And our U.S. market, do you see that affecting us more and going forward, you know, where, where's, where's South America end? I mean, do, are, do, where, where are, the, are they going to continue to keep becoming the bigger and bigger player in the grain market?
2: simple answer brazil yes Uh, and the main there's a lot of reasons there i mean we we look at our uh, ending stocks number you know fundamentally we had a pretty good crop this year on corn but for the most part with our amount of demand that we're looking for our feed consumption through the export business you know we're looking about ending stocks number around that 1.2 billion bushels very similar to last year so you would have to think that hey prices are going to be very similar to last year and i'm not going to argue that point today i think that's where things were at A lot is going to depend on what happens in South America on the corn side. On the soybean side, you know, same thing. We tend to have a lot of beans that tend to go to China uh, from the export side. Exports are down just slightly because of the conversation earlier about the Mississippi River being dry. We weren't able to get things down, but we're trying to ramp back up on that one there. We had a few spot sales here recently, so that's good to see. Uh, Bean numbers there, you know, we'll see here in the following month, you know, in January's report, you know, what their final number is. I would anticipate, you know, bean numbers to jump up just a little bit on the producer side. You know, the last uh, report there, we were sitting right around about a 50, a little bit over 50 bushels to the acre. I think we might be closer to 51 bushels. So if that jumps up there a little bit more from the production, you know, that's going to affect the markets as well. Mm -hmm. But the big key is South America when it comes to soybeans. Um, Brazil last year had a tremendous year in bean production. Now, the reason why the markets decided to go to 17 almost $18 last spring was because Brazil also had a lot of issues and problems. But they still outproduced U.S. And if you look at this year where they're currently at, uh, we're expecting roughly about a 5% increase on acres. If they have a normal weather year, whatever that might mean, but let's just say they have a normal year there, Brazil right now has the potential of producing almost 5.5 billion bushels of beans. Oh, just wow. Brazil. You take the US, for example, we're kind of more in that 4.3 to 4.4 billion mark. So they are really starting to outproduce us. Just over last year, you know, that'd be about a nine hundred million increase just in Brazil that's available to the world. That right there, if that does occur, and we'll know those answers more in February and March, but if that does occur, it's gonna be really tough for us to have prices much above $15 today. If that decides to back off, maybe there's another Dina. maybe they have some weather issues there. You know, we could be around right that edge at a $200 or plus carryout being close to $16, $17 beans. So these next, uh, you know, the next, you know, 30 to 60 days are really going to be key, you know, with the bean market there. And yeah. you're going to have to be ready as a producer to, boom, I want to go ahead and, you know, liquidate if I think Brazil could have a big crop there. You know, Argentina is no, you know, no small puppy either. Mm -hmm. You know, they're looking at maybe a potential 200 million bushel increase over last year. But Argentina started off the planting season really dry. They're behind. And we're not too sure how that's going to affect when they start taking off their beans more in that April, you know, May timeframe. But if you take those two numbers, you know, 1.1 billion more bushels of beans, that's a lot. I mean, that is a lot of beans that's available to the world to suffice the China's. The
1: and, world there. and one part I can just remember through talks past when Brazil and Argentina became players in the market, you know, it was their infrastructure that they were really lacking on getting that grain to market. Where I think it sounds like they've the infrastructure keeps in, improving every year to where, Kirk, do you think that they're going to be able to get their product to market that much quicker? Um, I mean, I, I just have heard that different countries are basically investing in that Brazilian market to help with that infrastructure part. Well,
0: they have a lot of the R&D portion of it, too, down there. I mean, they've, there's a lot of research and development that occurs within that, and so they have some of the best of the best coming out of there, too, correct?
2: Yes, that would be correct there. And, yes, uh, you know, people are investing. They're trying to figure out how can we get that out of there. Just think about it, a billion more bushels of soybeans. We're not even talking about corn yet on how much more corn be right, yeah. coming out. And, you know, and where the majority of that is grown, it is, you know, roughly, you know, almost a thousand miles to get to the ports. So it is like, you can just get over there overnight. Yep. I mean, we've seen the horror stories, you know, you know, 10, 12, 20 mile long lines to get into the ports, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, they're trying to invest into some more rail. They're trying to invest in some more of what they call these floating barges, uh, on the Amazon to get to the ports there. So that's that's going to be a challenge for them, you
1: know, over time. Where I, I still feel as, you know, local producers here, but, uh, you know, United States producers, we still strive to keep, I, we, we don't make ground anymore, you know, the dirt's used up. But we keep increasing every year on how much we can produce off that, that acre, which I still feel that, you know, with our technology and our farming practices, you know, we'll still continue to keep increasing our production just because of you know the technology and what we can produce per acre.
2: And to go on that, there, the U.S. farmers are going to have a really a uh, hard decision to make here in the next two to three years. And what I mean by that is, uh, we're talking about the beans know, down in Brazil. Uh, we're also looking here in the U.S. Uh, we hear a lot about the low carbon fuel standards. We see a lot of the. Information on commercials about electric vehicles, Mm -hmm. et cetera, but you know, from a uh, biodiesel standpoint, you know, there's a lot of facilities that are getting built, or even you know, being uh, you know expanded. For example, like a a Sydney with a Cargill facility, you know, they're looking to come online in July of 23, and to double their capacity. So all once that means an extra 20 million bushels of beans need to come into Sydney. You think about how that's going to affect our markets there. Oh right! In fact, you know all the announcements that we've seen. You know, by the year twenty twenty five, I mean there's a, a record potential that we might need an extra five hundred million bushels of beans. And you figure out a fifty bushel number there. You know, that's ten million more acres of soybeans. You'll know, by twenty twenty five that we need to potentially plant. Is that going to happen with corn? I mean, there's only, like I said, there's only so many acres out there. Right. So who gives? Who takes? Or do we begin to import? You know, from the Brazils, you know, from the you know, basically from South America. All questions are gonna be really a hard decision here in the next two to three years. And you know we're looking at you know producers are already making plans for twenty three. If you're gonna be uh, farming farming in twenty four, you're already long in the market, so you're probably gonna start making some plans for twenty four. And then you know we got twenty five that's gonna be right on the corner. So I I look for some major shifts to begin to occur and I think about Northwest Ohio. You know, we come off, you know, I think beans this year were just I thought there were a tremendous amount of yields on mm-hmm. the beans. We know that ground is a little bit hard. <laughs> I guess you want to say, <laughs> yeah. you know, more clay. So yep. beans tend to be more natural here. And I think that's what we're kind of beginning to see, you know, what shift does the producer make? But yet, I'm in the feed business too. I need corn. I want you to produce all the corn you can. <laughs> yes. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: It's amazing the factors that go into everything um, from weather inputs and now the markets uh, and how it all correlates together and there's just so much that a farmer needs to know uh, about it all you know they the joke is what the jack of all trades master of none because you've you trickle into every single part of it you also got to be the guy that fixes the equipment and and then obviously the business side with the marketing and it gets complicated real quick <laughs> so.
1: yes it does and Kirk I know you have a great team that you work with on the grain side at Mercer. Uh, if our listeners have questions for you or want to get in contact with somebody, how do they reach out to you?
2: We, uh, this past year, we started a, a grain marketing hotline, uh, Mercer Landmark there, to make sure that you are able to get a hold of a marketing individual. Um, we do have, a, currently right now, we, we have a three grain marketing advisors on our staff there. we got got three uh, grain marketing associates. We also have our lead marketing advisor, so you're able to get reach out to seven people there we're always constantly looking out for other individuals to come on to our team as well. You can reach us at our Grain Market Hotline at 844-676-2676. And the 2676 is corn, if you need to know that.
1: I like that. <laughs> and then you guys also have a uh, website, too, Kirk, uh, for Mercer?
2: We do have a, a website. Uh, it's at mercerlandmark.com. And also uh, something new that has come out here in the past year is um, we do have a app. It's a ML Connect is our app there. We're in the process of getting that up to date with our grain side there. The whole concept there is as we go through it, you can be able to see your tickets, your settlements, your contracts um, with the app there. This past harvest, we used it to send out harvest hours every single night uh, with all our facilities so everybody kind of knew. We've received a lot of good response on that one there, in fact, we see even more
1: response when we didn't send it out one night or if we had a little bit of a delay. <laughs> yeah, um, well, you, you think about as a producer when you're sitting in the truck or the combine, especially harvest, we're checking the weather. You know, we're checking our markets. We're doing everything else from our phone or our tablet anymore. So just to have that real-time...
0: Making the plan for tomorrow.
1: Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so... Well, Kirk, I appreciate you being a part of our podcast uh, today, sir, and uh, all the great information you shared. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to the Mercer Landmark team on in any uh, of the, uh, the website or the hotline. And we'll talk to you next time on Ag Credit Set.
0: Thank you for listening to Ag Credit Set It. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. While you are there, leave us a review to help others find the show. Let's talk ag in between episodes. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at agcredit. For more tips and resources, visit agcredit.net.